Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, as I rehearse those verses, which you all hear so much, one of the reasons I do that is hopefully by now you can say them along with me, and that that has become part of your uh, biblical consciousness in your soul and your stream of consciousness to handle problems. Uh, I think because of things that are going on, I'm not going to mention, but some of you know, I think that uh, the subject we're going to cover this week and next week and those particular promises are really important. We're going to talk about faith rest drill. We're going to talk about death and dying, preparation for death, dying grace, and mourning and grieving because we are coming up to the death of Jacob. And this, I think, because of medical challenges that several people in the congregation are facing, I think this is a very timely uh, timely subject. So before we get started this evening, let's have our word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we make sure we're in fellowship, ready to stay the word. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so very grateful that we have this opportunity to study your word as we reflect upon the doctrines we'll be covering the next few weeks and just they bring to our mind the uh, shortness, the brevity of life that is says in Scripture, it's like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. Father, we realize that with just a few short years that we have, even though at times it may seem like life is long, at other times it seems that it's ever so brief, we need, need to redeem the time to prepare ourselves for eternity, that this is but a staging area in preparation for the kingdom and then on into eternity. Father, as we look at these doctrines tonight, we often think about uh, family members, friends, those we, we know who are uh, perhaps facing life-threatening uh, diseases that we know that their time is very short. In others, we don't know that their time is short, but nevertheless, it may, might be. We study these things so that our souls may be fortified and strengthened in advance, that when the time comes, we may stand firm, be strengthened by your word. We pray that you'd help us to focus, concentrate, think in terms of application tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, we're in Genesis chapter 49, and we have come to the end of Jacob's final words of blessing this prophecy to the twelve sons, and this we find in Genesis 49:28. In our class two weeks ago, last week we had a Fourth of July special, and our class two weeks ago we focused just on the phrase the twelve tribes of Israel as a summary of the prophecies regarding each of the sons and their descendants, and then the future for the united twelve tribes in a summary of that on throughout history and into prophecy. We read in this verse, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel, these twelve sons mentioned. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. One way we could even translate that last sentence is he blessed each one appropriately. In other words, each blessing was fitted and tailored to each of the sons. Now, the word that should stand out in your mind the other night, it's Sunday night, it's great to see a good group here for Ike's class on how to study the Bible and watch everybody working so diligently. It's always a challenge to go through a class like that because you feel like, oh, wow, I just didn't quite get that, did I? But every time you do something like that, you gain a little and you learn something. And um, every time you learn something, I mean, just the other night when I was sitting there listening to Ike, I was reminded of things that uh, that I had forgotten or hadn't paid much attention to because there's always just so much to learn. And uh, it's sort of like years ago I took a, several speed reading classes. That was a great thing that uh, they had at, at seminary. When I was there, they had some people on staff who were qualified in instructing on speed reading. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a speed reading course, but you just feel so frustrated after a while you don't know. But every time I, I took one every year, and each time you'd be a little better than hopefully you were the year before, but during the year you would forget and fall off and you weren't using all the principles. So it's just, and a lot of things in life are like that. You just have to exercise the discipline to do it the right way uh, all the way through. So Bible study methods is like that, just constantly watching for things. And here we see one of the things to look for in observation is repetition. And we have a word that is repeated three times in this verse, and that is the word for blessing. Three times we have the word Barak used, which is the Hebrew for blessing. The root core meaning is to kneel. And then it came to be applied in a variety of different ways. And in some passages it means to bless. And it has the idea of praise. It has the idea of kneeling or saluting someone, greeting, congratulating. It has a has a wide range of meanings. And most of us tend to think that when you are blessed, that that is a good thing because part of the meaning for, for the word blessing has the idea of a statement of praise or a good statement um, is made. In fact, the Greek word for blessing is eulogetos, which is where we get our word eulogy, which is normally restricted now to what takes place at a funeral when somebody is praised for the things that they accomplished uh, during their life, hopefully. But blessing isn't always a good thing. If we think back on just a few of these prophecies related to the 12 sons, they weren't all positive. In fact, the very first ones related to uh, Reuben 
and to uh, Simeon and Levi. Reuben has said, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Now, how can that be a blessing? Maybe you see what I'm trying to get you to do is kick the slats out of your narrow definition of blessing. It has a lot of different manifestations. So when you pray for God to bless you, perhaps you might not mean that because sometimes blessing isn't really a good thing. It may include a lot of divine discipline in the process. So uh, this is one of my hobby horses when I teach word studies to pastors and to others. That's one of the things that I jump on is these nebulous Bible words that Christians tend to load up their pious vocabulary with so that they sound like they're very spiritual and they talk about being holy and and use words like blessed. And, and now you hear people say all the time, say, well, I hope you have a blessed day. Well, what does that mean? Reuben didn't have a blessed day. He got blessed by his father, and it wasn't much of a positive thing. So I was wrestling with this this afternoon in just what sense is is he is the word blessing being used in in Jacob's statement to them and the idea here is that it's a statement a blessing can be a statement of the power and the provision of God for something how God is going to uh, work and be faithful to you over the years, even though you may fail. And in light of the where some of these men and their and, and their descendants would be, they would fail many times. Nevertheless, the outworking of this this whole blessing statement for the twelve for the twelve sons is that God is going to be faithful to the Abrahamic covenant, and even though. You are in many cases unworthy, and some of this is outlined in these blessing statements that they wouldn't do much, they wouldn't accomplish much, they weren't uh, they, they weren't the leaders of the class. Nevertheless, God was going to be faithful to His promise to Abraham, and would eventually fulfill all of His promises to Abraham and to His descendants. So that is why this is a blessing statement. And when you read the word blessing. In, uh, in, in the book of Genesis especially, you can't understand it and, and divorce it from God's uh, statement of blessing to Abraham that through all the, all the nations would be blessed through him. So it is a reminder that despite their flaws and failures and despite all of the things that are going to happen, God is still going to be faithful to his promises. So it also takes us into the New Testament. And a verse we'll look at it a little later on as well. In Hebrews 11.21, we're told that at this time when Jacob was dying, by faith, that is not just in terms of an act of trusting too often today, People think of faith as this sort of nebulous, mystical thing where you just believe something because it makes your life work. That's the existential concept of a leap of faith. Every now and then I hear Christians use that phrase, leap of faith, and I just really twinge. I want to reach out and slap them. Leap of faith is is a worse thing. You, you as a Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian, never take a leap of faith. Leap of faith means that you're be- going to believe something that goes against reason and against experience. 
And God is not at war with rash, with reason or experience. God is the author of truth. And so there's stability there. We believe because there is, there is rational evidence and there's empirical evidence of the faithfulness of God and of His truth. We don't just leap into a blind void believing it because somehow it makes life work for us. If you were here at family night last, Wednesday night we showed the fun little film uh, on secondhand lions. And one of the key ideas in the secondhand lions with the young boy who's got these two uh, older uncles that are mentoring him is that speech that um, um, was given by, who was it, Robert um, Duvall. I can't believe I blanked on that. Robert Duvall gives to the young men their, their coming-of-age speech. And his first, almost the first thing out of his mouth was, it doesn't really matter if something is true. You just have to have something to believe in. And you have to believe in things like virtue and courage and, and honor. And it doesn't matter if they're true. And this is such a postmodern idea that, that truth is, is juxtaposed to faith and to uh, reason. So we... Uh, trust because there's content there. The biblical idea of faith isn't just believing to believe, but it's believing truth because it is truth that is what matters. That's why when Jesus says in uh, John chapter 6 that, uh, that know the truth and the truth will set you free, it's not, it's it's the truth because the truth is that which orients you to reality, and that's what gives us freedom is because our thinking is properly oriented to reality, not because there is just some sort of existential power to truth. I mean, there's a lot of truths. Then just because you understand truths, lowercase t, doesn't mean that that sets you free from anything. You have to know the overall framework of capital T truth, total truth, uh, in order to have that true freedom in the soul, which is freedom from uh, freedom from uh, slavery to sin. So by faith, that is by trust in the truth, Jacob, when he was dying, and we know that he's dying, that's why he this whole situation has been set up as he calls his son together, this preparation for his death. We touched on that when we first came into this section. He blesses each of the sons of Joseph, and here that focus is just on those two. He worshiped leaning on top of his staff. So this whole thing is connected together, the, the blessing that he gives to them because they're the younger and they're the one, and as the two sons of Joseph, Joseph is getting uh, the double portion uh, blessing, and, but it's operation, the basis is faith, and that's what's going on even at this stage beginning in verse uh, 29. So verse 28 ends the previous section, his blessing to each one of them, and then in verse 29 he says, Then he charged them, his final words prior to death, Then he charged them and said to them, that is to the group of sons, all twelve of them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And the focus in this section is going to be on death 
and dying. It starts off, he says, he charged them. It's the Hebrew word savah, which means to order, to command, to appoint, to, cho- to charge. And it's used twice here. It's used at the beginning, then he charged them. And then it's used again, look down in verse 33 in the King James. See, it uses a different English word. That always throws you off. I don't know why when the original uses the same word, English translators come in and use a different word. In verse 33, when Jacob had finished commanding his son. See, it's the same word in the Hebrew in both places. And it frames the section. It's what is called an inclusio when you have a... Uh, a phrase at the beginning and, a, and, a, and it's mirrored at the end, it brackets the, the paragraph so you know that this is your, your basic unit of thought here. He commands them to gather, to, to bury him at the field of uh, the cave of Machpelah back in Canaan. This is very important and his whole statement of this command makes up the lion's share of this section from verse 29 down through 32 is his statement, and it seems overly redundant, uh, overly detailed. He wants to make sure, if we read the verses, he says it's in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for burial place. It's the second time he mentions his, the, the field of Ephron the Hittite. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There, notice the repetition of there. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. He's emphasizing the detail here because he doesn't want to just bury him anywhere. There's a specific piece of real estate and he wants to make sure that they don't miss the point that he needs to bury, be buried in that precise place uh, where Abraham and Isaac and their wives are buried. So he commands them to do this. And the next word we want to note is the word gathered. This is the uh, <coughs> Hebrew word asaf. This is the same root for Joseph being added or being gathered. It's found in, in verse 1 of chapter chapter 49 where we read, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together. See how the, the language is being used very artfully to tie things together. And then in verse 2 he says again, Gather together and listen, you sons of Jacob. And so here at the end, and the last verse he says, When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So the vocabulary here ties things together in a very neat package. He says, I'm to be gathered to my people. He's not dying. He's going to be with his parents and his grandparents and his whole family. He has a profound sense of resurrection here. His view of death is extremely real. It is not something that, that he's afraid of. There's not a level of anxiety here. He knows what's going to happen to him is as certain as if I were to walk down this aisle and through that door and say, I'm going to go to the kitchen. I know exactly what's going to happen. There's a definite certainty there, even though I may never have done that before. Now, I've been to the kitchen before, but um, you understand the point of the analogy, that he has never crossed that bridge of death before. He's never crossed through that door over that threshold, but he knows with certainty what's on the other side. 
because God has told him. And when God tells you, you don't need to have experiential data in order to uh, validate that. Nobody needs to come back from the grave. One of the passages where we will look at uh, briefly is in Luke chapter 16, which is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the point of that whole story is that when when the the rich man realizes that he is in torments and what has happened because he has rejected God, he pleads with Abraham to release Lazarus to let him go back uh, to earth in order to tell his brothers. And Abraham has a profound comment. He says, experiential data won't work. They've rejected the truth already. And the truth is that Moses and the prophets told them exactly what would happen. And if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe the empirical data of someone raised from the dead. Now, there's a verse and a concept to think about at night. Because so often when we're witnessing to people, we wish there were just some some little special something that we could throw out that would just be that that thing that would, would connect and would confirm for them the truth of the word. And the fact is that that's already happened. The Holy Spirit did that, but they rejected it. They're like the brothers of the rich man. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, there is nothing you can do. You can't perform a miracle. You can't raise somebody from the dead. You can't refer to any great transformation or testimony or experiential data that will convince them. If they don't believe the word of God, they won't believe anything else. And that's what we see with Jacob. He believes the word of God, and it is more real to him than anything else, anybody's ideas of what's going to happen uh, about death or what transpires at the moment of death. He is absolutely certain what will happen. He is going to be gathered with his with his people. So in this final command to his 12 sons, we see the richness of the doctrine in his soul and how it shapes his understanding of what happens at death and what a relaxed person he is because of that. He's calm. He's certain he's made a number of important decisions in relationship to the family. He's been able to objectively think things out in order to prepare for, for death because he knows that he's not going to miss it. He's going to, be, he's going to die. Their lives will go on, and he has to properly uh, prepare for them. The fact that he uses this terminology, gathered to my people, indicates his understanding and belief in resurrection. This was one of the things that uh, the Lord emphasized when he debated the Sadducees over the resurrection, he pointed out that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God. Just that turn of the phrase there, that present tense verb, indicated in the text that there was a future resurrection for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was the point. These men knew that God had promised them the possession of the land. That never happened in their life on earth. Therefore, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt God would bring them back from death and that they would then possess the land because God was faithful to his promise. And what undergirds Jacob's confidence at death and undergirds our confidence at death. At whoever's death it is, we can have a confidence and a stability that no one else can have because we know the truth. 
because we know with absolute certainty, beyond the certainty of rationalism, beyond the certainty of empiricism, what the realities are at the time of death. So he has a focus on resurrection. And then he says, I'm to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. Now, where is that located? Well, if we, as we read down, we we'll, won't hit it in this verse, but in the next verse, it's in the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. Now, he uses the word bury here, which is the Hebrew verb kavar, and some form of this word occurs 14 times in the next nine verses. What do you think this is all about? This is, this is our funeral passage. This section from uh, 49, 29, all the way down through uh, chapter 50, verse uh, 14, is all about the burial, uh, the death and burial of Jacob and the preparation for that. And there are some wonderful lessons in this section that we can derive that are going to provide stability for you when you face that time when there is a, a loved one or dear friend in your life who goes to be with the Lord. And there's just so many misconceptions that Christians have at the time of, of death and the time of departure because of just shallow teaching or superficial teaching or whatever. But when we know the truth, we know that we can have a tremendous confidence. And even in the midst of sorrow and sadness and heartache and bereavement, because just to give you a little note, look at chapter 50, verse 1. Joseph's got as much doctrine as Jacob. Joseph, we know, is really squared away. Joseph isn't losing it in chapter 50, verse 1. But there is a reality at death, and there is a sorrow that is completely legitimate. The Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians he said, We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. See, there is legitimate grief, sorrow, mourning for the believer. There's this myth that some believers get that if I'm really spiritual, I'm not going to show any sorrow. I'm not going to have any sadness whatsoever. How how a human viewpoint would that be for me to get sad and have sorrow? I'm just going to focus on, on the fact that they're in heaven. Well, you've just sort of emasculated yourself and cut off your emotions. There is real legitimate sorrow and death at the time of uh, departure, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is an intense scene. This is a dramatic scene. The other brothers aren't doing it. Joseph is almost crawling in the coffin with his father. We all hear stories about this. When I used to work in the funeral business years ago, you would hear stories about people who would just lose it and crawl in the coffin with somebody. and Some poor funeral director would have to handle that. But... Joseph isn't doing that. This is in the deathbed scene, and he's just falling on his father, but he is showing the intensity of the grief there, but it doesn't overwhelm him. It is not that it is wrong to grieve and sorrow and hurt profoundly when someone near and dear departs to be with the Lord. It's not questioning God's goodness or his timing or anything else. It is simply the fact that we weren't made to go through that. When God created Adam and Eve... The initial intent and the makeup of man was not to die. 
But death is the penalty for sin, and I think that one reason it hurts so much when someone near and dear dies, when we go through that loss, is because it is a built-in mechanism that God's given us to grab our attention, that this isn't the way it ought to be. There, there's a sense we all have when someone dies that this shouldn't happen. This is wrong. This shouldn't have happened this way. This is, this isn't right for them to leave and for this, this to end this way. And that's exactly right. It is a reminder to us that this is not normal. Death is abnormal. It is the penalty for, for sin, the consequence of Adam's uh, sin in the garden. And it's not supposed to be that way. We weren't intended to go through that. So it is a reminder of the need for the gospel, a reminder of the need for grace. And this is why uh, funerals are a great opportunity to present the gospel and make it clear to people because it's the one time that they are most vulnerable in life to the realities uh, of death and dying. So for, for Jacob, though, the one who is dying, he's not going to lose anything. He's focused on... He's going to be with the Lord. He's going to be with Rachel. He's going to be with uh, Leah. He's going to be with Isaac and Sarah. He's going to be with Abraham. He's going to be with the Lord. So his focus is totally on eternal things, and that gives him a peace and stability, while those who are left behind are the ones who are feeling that loss and feeling that separation. So he is also focused on the future. Because he says, bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. Now, why is it important for him to be, to be buried with his fathers? That's question one. And why is it important that he be buried in that piece of real estate? That's question two. It's important for him to be buried with his fathers, with Abraham, with Isaac. And Leah's there, but was Leah his favorite? No. A lot of times with married couples, they want to be buried next to their loved one, their dear husband or their dear wife. But Joseph, I mean, Jacob wants to be married with Leah. Why? Not because Leah is there. Rachel is buried outside of Bethlehem. He wants to be buried there because that's where Abraham and Isaac are, and the three patriarchs need to be unified. It has something to do with the unity of the nation and he is thinking totally within the divine viewpoint promised of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's why he wants to be married, buried in the land. Because he wants to be resurrected where? In the land, not outside of the land, but in the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to himself. So it emphasizes the fact that this piece of real estate is the only piece of real estate that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever owned in the land. They didn't own any other land. God did not fulfill that promise. The only piece of real estate in the land that was theirs was this piece that Abraham had purchased from uh, Ephraim the Hittite. That was it. So he uh, goes through in detail the list of uh, people. He says, uh, this land, that's in, this cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephraim the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. Uh, 
There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave, this is the third mention of that phrase, the field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And so the emphasis is going back to the land to fulfill that. And he, it's, what we see in this whole statement is the tremendous faith that Jacob had. This is for the function of what? It's the faith rest grill. What gives him stability and peace and tranquility and happiness at the end of his life, what is at the core of what we refer to as dying grace is really an understanding of the faith rest drill. He, the promises of God are more real to him than anything else. So I want to tie together for us tonight if we have time. If not, we'll have to finish it next time. But we, we have to go on into the whole doctrine of grieving and mourning and... Um, things related to dying next time, so it's not bad to have the repetition to make sure we get it all, is the doctrine of the faith rest drill, because this is what we see exemplified here in terms of everything that that, um, that Jacob is doing here. Normally we don't think of, of death as the great op- greatest opportunity in life that we'll have to exercise a faith rest drill. But it is, because it's that opportunity to rest completely in God's promises. And often, I've seen this, that when you have a mature believer who is dying, they're the one that's comforting everybody else around them. They're the one that's giving the gospel to everybody in the in the hospital. They're the ones that, that are totally relaxed. In fact, it wasn't long ago that I was uh, talking with a, uh, I think it was with Jim Myers, and he was telling me about a, Jewish couple that he knew in uh, Arkansas, and they were originally from uh, up north in Michigan somewhere, and the wife was uh, exercising with some friends who were evangelical believers, and after a certain amount of time, they were witnessing to her, she got saved. And she came home one day, and her husband came home from from, uh, work. He was a surgeon, a neurosurgeon, and she came home. From, he came home from work, and he said, "Well, they were just talking in the kitchen. What did you do today?" And she said, "Well, I trusted Christ as my Savior." <laughs> and so he, well, why did you do that? And so he was very interested in that. And it was not long before he also trusted Christ as his Savior. And one of the things that prepared him was that, as a neurosurgeon, he had uh, years of experience watching people die. And his comment to Jim was that. Christians die differently because when they die, they're not concerned about what's going to happen to them. They're concerned about what's going to happen to me, their doctor. But when non-Christians die, they're concerned about what's going to happen to them. But time after time after time, when he had to deal with Christians who were dying, they were more concerned about the state of his soul and his eternal destiny than they were about their own. So that just exemplifies the kind of of stability that Christians have in dying grace. So what precedes that, though, is the function of the faith rest drill. So let's just review this faith rest drill uh, very briefly. It's a doctrine that's familiar to both of us. First of all, in terms of a definition, we have to understand what faith is. It's a very active concept of trusting in something. As I pointed out earlier, this isn't the idea of faith in faith, it's just believing in the act of believing itself somehow is a benefit. 
It's the object of belief that has value. If the object of belief is a false proposition, one that's not true, then it doesn't do you any good. If I believe I have a full tank of gas in the car and only have fumes, I'm not going to get very far, no matter how sincere my faith is. So it is the object of faith that matters. So we are to have faith in the content of Scripture. And when we get to these passages, like Hebrews 11.21, which we've referenced already, by faith, Jacob, it's not just the idea of the act of trusting. It's not just emphasizing that, that Jacob had trust, so we should all be trusting in something. That's, that's what a liberal uh, psychobabble pastor would say. This is talking about the content of faith, that which is believed. It is that body of doctrine that shaped his life that gives him the foundation for doing what he did. This is what we see all the way through Hebrews chapter 11. So faith is something that is that trusts and entrusts itself to uh, something that is always, we can always express it propositionally. In salvation... The object of faith is the work of Christ on the cross, that Jesus Christ died for us, that he is our Savior. He is the one that we entrust our eternal destiny to. And that's the essence of the gospel, that you are entrusting yourself to the work of Christ on the cross, that what he did is sufficient to give me forgiveness of sins, to provide for my justification, my eternal life, all of those different things that are a result of uh, of, our, of our faith and trust in Christ. We talk about a number of these different things, justification, regeneration, eternal life. It doesn't matter. Those are results. As long as you are entrusting yourself to the Lord, you don't have to have a degree in, in, in theology. You, you don't have to write a soteriological treatise in order to be saved. You, it's simply an act of uh, of trusting Christ, that, that great image that John uses, or that Jesus uses actually in John 3.15, when Jesus uses the illustration of what happened in the wilderness, when the Jews were uh, being disciplined by God and there's this, uh, all of a sudden there, there's these vi- poisonous vipers everywhere and people are dying left and right, and so God instructs Moses to put a a uh, bronze serpent on a cross, on a stick, and raise it up. And if people just look to it, they don't have to understand any dynamics. All they do is by looking that act of trust, that simple act of casting their gaze upon that raised uh, metal serpent would result in their being instantly healed. That's what trust is. That's what faith at salvation is. And faith in the spiritual life is no different. It is a trust in the various promises of God. In the Old Testament, the soteriological promise had to do with the future provision of God, that God would provide a Savior in the future. And so they were entrusting themselves to God's provision of a Savior. In the spiritual life in the Old Testament, the focal point is on the various promises of God, that they grow by means of trusting these promises and relying upon them so that for them the very core of their life is learning to trust in the promise and then relaxing in its provision. That's where we have this idea of faith and rest. Faith doesn't mean that faith, the rest doesn't mean that faith is just this passive thing. 
Faith rest means that when we trust God to do and do what he says to do, if there's something that's involved in that, or just relaxing, just believing it, we are able to relax and have tranquility. We have peace of mind, relaxed mental attitude, and then we are able to move forward no matter what the circumstances may be or no matter what the threats around us might be. Now, what is the promise, the key promise, the core promise that Jacob is focusing on? It's that promise that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. He understood what God had promised, and that had become more real to him than anything else. It was the promise of the land, the promise of descendants, the promise of great descendants who would be a blessing to all the world. So we see this in that he understands these promises. The idea of promises is, is brought out in Second Peter 1, 3, and 4, one of my favorite verses, that seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, not some things, not most things, not just an abundance of things, but everything pertaining to life and godliness. And these two words in the Greek indicate our physical life as well as our spiritual life. The, the word for life here indicates the, the physical needs. Everything God wants us to do, he's going to provide for. He's going to give you the, the food, the clothing, the shelter, all of the logistical needs that, that are necessary for you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. And the godliness has to do with the spiritual life and spiritual growth. And this is through the knowledge of him who called us by his own knowledge and excellence, which is doctrine. For by these, that is, by his glory and excellence, his character, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It is by the promises and trusting in them that we're able to grow and that the image of Christ is built into us. Now, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that starts with understanding that that core promise. Genesis 12, 2 is the first statement. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. That's at the very core of the, of the promise. 12, 7, he repeats the land promise. To your descendants, I will give this land. Abraham believed him, built an altar there. It's repeated again in Genesis 13, 14 and 15, after Lot had separated from Abram, the Lord said, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. In Genesis chapter 15, he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Where's Jacob? He's in that land that is not theirs. He is a stranger out of the land. Yet he can, he's reminded of this promise that God gave to Abram. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Jacob has probably figured he's already been there for uh, maybe 10 or 15 years. And he can subtract that from 400. He says, okay, they've got 385 to go. But he knows they're going back because of the promise of God. 
Verse 14, also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's not only a promise that they will have the land, but there's a promise that they're, they're going to be out of the land for a, a time before they actually uh, do possess it. So there are many other passages, Genesis 17, 1 through 12, and verse 19, Genesis 21, 13, Genesis 21, 16 to 18, uh, Genesis 26, 3 through 5, which is when uh, Jacob is going out of the land, and he is at Bethel, and this is where he lays down, uses a rock for his pillow, and he has the dream of the stairway to heaven, and God's first uh, reiteration of the promise specifically to Jacob that he would bring him back to the land and he would bless him. And then in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, when he's coming back into the land, again, he this time he is on the uh, Transjordan side of the Jordan. He's over in what is now modern Jordan on the Yabok River. And it is there that God confirms the, the promise of Abraham to him again at a place called Peniel. And then in Genesis 32, uh, 28, uh, this is, excuse me, that's in Genesis 32, 28 to 29. So in all of these passages, there's a reiteration, reiteration of these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And underneath this, they have an understanding of basic principles, basic promises that we have in uh, such psalms as Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. In Psalm 91.2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Another promise is Psalm 91.4. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. It is, again, it's the truth of God's word that is that which protects us and that's that which gives us strength. So there's a lot of different passages we can go to, like 1 Peter 5, 5 through 9, that talk about trusting God with everything. And, and the context here is important because 1 Peter 5, 5 talks about the fact that you can't trust God unless you're humble. Humility precedes everything, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, the command in verse 6 is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And we are to cast our care upon him because he cares for you. Now, as we look at this whole concept of faith rest drill, The first concept is just simply understanding the definition, which is to trust in the object of God's revelation, whether it's a salvation promise or whether it's a spiritual life promise. The second thing is that the first step involves taking this promise and mixing it with faith. That simply means that we trust it. It's just a figure of speech used in the Scriptures in Hebrews chapter 4 to describe the act of believing the promise. It's not just some academic principle that's out there, not just some some verse written on the page, but we're going to believe it and stake our lives upon it. So that's the 
That's the first step. And for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. The third level of the faith rest drill that we've talked about before is to have a doctrinal rationale. That's to think through a promise to meditate on it, understand the, the dynamics that are going on inside that inside that promise. And this is where Bible study methods helps you. That's why one reason it's good to take this thing, this course that, that Ike is teaching is because it's going to help you when you find a promise in the Scripture and say, you know, I really like that promise. And I think it means something. Well, now you need to sit down and think, learn how to think it through more more. Uh, profoundly uh, study some of the words, learn some of those things. Knowing how to do a word study using elementary tools isn't part of the gift of pastor teacher. That's part of the gift of of being uh, led and taught by the Holy Spirit for every believer. Anybody can study the scriptures to a certain degree. Knowing how to use various Bible study tools, knowing the methods, just helps you to think about a promise a little more profoundly uh, in terms of your own spiritual life. Now, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they could think about the promise. We, I, I'm reminded about that end test that Abraham had when he was told by God to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. And Abraham just does it without a second thought. God told him to do this, and from Hebrews 11, we know that he understood that even if he did sacrifice Isaac, God was able to raise him from the dead. What does that tell you? That Abraham, over all these years and in watching God's faithfulness, had come to understand that despite all of the distractions that Uh, Satan throws our way to try to get us to stop trusting God and all the things, the doubts and worries and concerns that come up, that he understood that God backed his word and that if God was going to fulfill his promises to him through Isaac, that Isaac was going to have, he wasn't going to kill him or Isaac was going to come back from the dead, but God was going to be faithful to his promise. So he had thought it through and so he was able to understand this rationale, what, what's the reasoning here? God promised to give me the land. God promised that it was going to go to my descendants and that those descendants would go through Isaac. Therefore, if I sacrifice Isaac, then for God to be God, he's got to bring Isaac back. He thought through the underlying principles and the logic of the promise. In the same way, Jacob did. He took that promise from Genesis chapter 15, and he knew that that all of his family, uh, they were all out of of uh, the land, and they were all in this period of sojourning in a foreign land that God had uh, pro- uh, prophesied in Genesis chapter 15. And so he could relax knowing that this was all within the plan of God, and if he and all of his sons and their families, and they had over 70 that came out from Canaan, that all of them would go, go back. And then when they went back, there would be many, many more of them, and God would bless them during the 400 years they were out of the land. So he could relax. He thought through uh, the rationale, and he reached certain conclusions. That's the fourth point in the in our study of the faith rest drill, our survey, is that we reach certain conclusions. And we reach conclusions about God, that God 
for God to say something like that, he has to know all the things that are going to happen. God in his omniscience knew everything that was going to transpire over the next at least 400 years of history. And in his omniscience, God knew all of the different things that could happen to all the different Jews. He knew all the different uh, rulers that would come up in Egypt. He knew all the threats that were going to come along. And yet God could say with complete certainty that after 400 years, they would return to the land. So he understood that God had, was omniscient. He understood, secondly, that God had a, had a plan, and that plan meant that eventually they would be raised from the grave to enjoy the possession of the land because since God had promised it to him, God would fulfill it even though he, they had never seen it in their physical life. So he could think, through, think it through in terms of God's eternal plan, and as a result of that, he could take the appropriate action, which was just to relax and rest in that promise. So he is completely uh, relaxed, and we see this at the end. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, what did he do? He drew up his feet into the bed, curled up, pulled the covers up, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. No hysteria, no fear, no drama, just a relaxed passing as he went from this life into the next. So this is how you prepare yourself for that time when it's going to be absent from the body face to face with the Lord. There has to be a preparation, and this is the next point. We'll just cover it briefly. It's a very brief summation. The doctrine for preparation for dying. I'm always amazed at how many of us don't ever prepare for the inevitable. We always joke about the fact that two things are certain, death and taxes. We know we have to prepare for taxes because we don't want to be audited. But there's a bigger audit coming for everybody. And that for the believer that's at the judgment seat of Christ and for the unbeliever that's at the great white throne judgment. And death is certain unless you're in the rapture generation. And I, I think back on so many uh, pastors, Bible teachers, from John Nelson Darby all the way down to Lewis Berry Chafer and John Walvoord and uh, numerous others who have been fairly convinced from their study of prophecy that the Lord would most likely come in their lifetime. And he did not. And many of us in this room have been uh, students of prophecy for most of our lives, and and we're getting grayer and grayer, and we have friends that have already gone to be with the Lord, and it did not occur in their lifetime, and it may not occur in our lifetime. Are we prepared? I think when you're young, you have a tendency to think, oh, it's just death is so far away, we'll never get there. And then if you're a believer, you also have a tendency to think, well, rapture is going to come before I die. I'm not going to have to deal with it. But it comes closer and closer for us all the time, and we never know. You never know. Tomorrow you may be hit by a car. Tomorrow you may be diagnosed with some fatal illness. You, we just have no idea how many days the Lord has given us, so we have to be prepared. And the first issue is to prepare for the destiny of our own soul. Where will you spend eternity? Will you spend eternity in the lake of fire, or will you spend eternity in heaven? Now, I take it for granted that everybody in this room 
has already made that decision, and so you have settled that by putting your faith alone in Christ alone, and you know you will spend eternity with God in heaven. So that leads you to the second question of preparation, which is what's going to happen to you at the judgment seat of Christ? That is the second most important question. In other words, what are we going to do after we're saved? Are we just going to say, well, Lord, as long as I'm in heaven, that's good enough? Or is it more important for us to learn the word of God so that we can glorify God with our life in time so that we can more effectively serve him in eternity? So the first question has to do with eternity. The second question has to do with what will happen at the Bema Seat. And then the third question means that we just have to take care of earthly business. Just like Jacob did. He didn't just say, well, I'm going to be with the Lord. He's going to take care of all you boys, and he's got a plan, and I'm out of here. He took time to prepare them in the legal sense that he did at that time in terms of the blessing. That was a very legal operation. The blessing to Joseph's son, setting them apart, all of that was was all part of the process. So we need to do the same thing. That means that you need to make sure that you have a will. Or you need to set up, if you have assets, you need to have a trust set up or whatever the wisest thing can be that you can do with your physical assets in order that that things are provided legally for those you leave behind, for your spouse, for your children, for your grandchildren. So you have to take care of that in terms of wills or trusts or other things that are related to that. Uh, medically, we don't know what's going to happen. You may be hit in a car accident tomorrow where you are comatose and you can't make decisions. So what about a living will? Everybody needs to have a living will. Power of attorney. What happens if that kind of thing happens to you and your spouse? You need to have a designation. If you have children that are still minors, you need to have decisions made in writing for who will take care of and raise those children. Power of attorney, power of uh, medical attorney for taking care of uh, medical issues, and also preparing your spouse or your children. In most marriages, most couples, you have one who handles all the finances, one who pays the bills, one who knows what's going on financially, and the other one usually doesn't. And in many cases, you find that, that when, when the per- person that, that knows all of that is the one who goes first. Maybe not. But the one that's left then all of a sudden has to figure out where everything is and put it all together. There should be communication. There should be things written and prepared so that uh, that transition is, is fairly easy. Also in terms of preparing them spiritually and preparing yourself spiritually. You sit there, and perhaps you're a parent, and you have a child. Now, the hardest thing I understand is for parents to bury their children. One of the greatest illustrations I ever heard of this is to think about the fact that um, you're sitting at home one day. It's Saturday afternoon. The doorbell rings, and there's a man at the door. And he doesn't say a word. He just hands you an envelope and leaves. You open the envelope, and there's $1,000 in the envelope. You go outside, you look around for him, and he's gone. The next day, or the next Saturday, 2 o'clock, doorbell rings. 
There's a man at the door, same man, hands you an envelope, turns and walks away. You open it up, and there's another $1,000. Well, the next Saturday, you are canceled your plans to go out of town. You're going to make sure you're there at 2 o'clock. And at 2 o'clock, doorbell rings. You open the door. It's the same man, hands you an envelope. There's $2,000 in the envelope or $1,000 in the envelope. And this goes on week after week. Before long, you're got the door open. You've got your lawn chair sitting out there in front. You're waiting for him to show up. You're counting on the fact that this is going to happen. Then what happens 10 years later when he doesn't show up? Well, now, I mean, you're, you're spending this money ahead of time. You've got it out there on your Visa card and your uh, all of your credit cards, and you've bought a house, and you're uh, making payments on a vacation home, and you've bought a car because you're counting on the fact that every Saturday at 2 o'clock you're going to get $1,000. And when he doesn't show up, how do you feel? See, you didn't have a right to that $1,000 to begin with. And if you're a parent, you don't have a right to that child. That is a gift from God, and you may have that child for five years or ten years or twenty years, or you may go to be with the Lord before they do. But see, what happens is we get a focus on whatever it is that God's given us is if that's ours. And we have a right to it for the rest of our life. Our perspective gets all messed up. And we need to prepare in our own souls for the fact that our spouse, our children, our parents can go to be with the Lord tomorrow. As much as we love and adore them, they can be gone tomorrow. How are you going to handle that doctrinally? Have you taken the promises of God and the doctrine that you know and applied that to to that situation? Because... If you haven't, and that happens, that will devastate you in ways it wouldn't if you had taken that doctrine and fortified your soul in preparation for that so that you think through in advance what will happen. And we don't like to do that. We don't like to think about those kinds of things. But I've seen that in 30 years of pastoral ministry. I have seen the difference between Christian parents who lose a child who didn't have a lot of doctrine and Christian parents who lose a child who have a lot of doctrine. Do they? Do the ones who lose a child who have a lot of doctrine, do they not grieve? They grieve just, they, they have tremendous loss. But because they've prepared their souls with doctrine, Proverbs chapter 2 talks about the fact that, that if you don't prepare yourself with wisdom before the event, it's too late afterward. You have to be prepared. And so we have to be prepared for dying. It's, it's going to happen. We have to be prepared in a lot of different ways. So that is the mature response. Now, we need to talk about dying grace because Jacob is a wonderful example of dying grace. And then we also have to talk about the response to dying, which is what comes up in the next chapter. And we'll get into that next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to study these things. They're not always easy. Facing death, facing the death of friends, of loved ones, of family is, is often difficult because it's not what we were designed for. But as believers, it's a fantastic opportunity to see your grace at work, to see, uh, see and experience your, your strength, your faithfulness, and also to exhibit that to others. Father, we pray that as we face these challenges in our own life, 
that we might be able to relax, as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, that because you are our shepherd and that is a genuine reality, then we are able to face whatever threats, whatever uh, what, whatever uh, things that might come when we walk through a uh, valley of the shadow of death, when there are dangers around us, and when the future is uncertain, we are relaxed because you are the one who takes care of us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.